Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Plan on joining us for the holidays this year and spend Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, or Sukkot with your brothers and sisters in Hudson, Wisconsin. Everybody loves a good story. This is a story of teshuva, but not just any story of teshuva or repentance. This is a story of a young kid who got mixed up with guns, gangs, and drugs. This is the story of a broken family, a kid that was searching for meaning and love and acceptance and found it in the most unexpected of places. This is a story of an assimilated Jewish American boy who found the Messiah and never was the same. This is a story of years of trial and error, loneliness and despair, ending in unimagined blessing and an exciting future. This is my story of teshuva. Okay, before I begin my personal story of teshuva, I want to make clear what we're trying to accomplish. The month of Tishrei is fast approaching, and in this month we have a yearly rehearsal of our teshuva, returning to our love, our Father, our King. In this month, we're introspective, and if we take advantage of the season in the right way, this is a time for restoring relationships. It's vitally important to reflect on the past year, but also to reflect on one's life, to appreciate the ups and downs that led you to where you are today. Although this realization might sting a bit, we have to swallow the fact that wherever we find ourselves in our life's journey today, it's due to all the decisions we've made over the past year, past five years, ten years, and or past decades. Whether we like where we're at or not spiritually, whether our health is failing or we're nurturing healthy habits and a healthy lifestyle, whether we've succumbed to negative habits and addictions or have strived to surrender all of ourselves to God. The opportunity is ours. The prophet Isaiah calls to us, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It makes sense to start with our most important relationship, our Father, our King. A multiplicity of times during the next 40 days will repeat over and over the phrase Avinu, Malkeinu, our Father, our King. When we reflect on this imagery, we may discover a strange paradox, a relationship between a subject to a sovereign that at the same time intersects with a father-son or father-daughter relationship. Imagine that your father or mother occupied the office of the President of the United States or some other country for our virtual members. Imagine that your relationship existed on two simultaneous planes, that of a daughter or son and that of a resident and political constituent of the nation that your parent governs. Imagine after a hectic workday of running the free world, your father or mother lies down on the floor to build Legos with you, reads you your favorite bedtime story, and tucks you in at night carefully listening to you recount all the mundane events of your day. The same father spends the next day brokering peace deals between warring countries, reviewing legislation on proposed bills and laws that will dictate the nation's political and economic future, and appearing on television to millions of people. What a contrast! What a conflict of emotions! This analogy ultimately breaks down, however, when we think of our father, our king. The mystics say that Elul is a month when the king is in the field. When a politician runs for office, he or she wants your vote. He or she needs your vote. 
He heads to the metaphorical highways and byways, every small town, farmhouse, and big city arena, every social media and TV news outlet making speeches and giving campaign assurances, all to get your vote. This is not so with the king. You don't get to vote on a king. You acknowledge and pay your allegiance to a king. A king doesn't need your vote. A king doesn't need to issue a statement detailing his political platform or issue campaign promises to secure your vote. He's your sovereign and your ruler. A king doesn't need to travel to the small towns and big cities to appease and work with blue states and red states or left-wing and right-wing political parties. When we reflect on the statement that has the audacity to suggest that a king, the king, would shed his royal garb, roll up his pant legs, and muddy his shoes just to sit and talk with a lowly peasant, we begin to grasp the magnitude of the opportunity that this season brings. Elul is 30 days before the regality of Rosh Hashanah, 40 days before the serious and dignified nature of Yom Kippur, and 45 days before the non-stop festivity of Sukkot. Understand the importance of this month and properly appreciate the opportunity that it reflects. I'm going to, with God's help, explain a little bit about the season that directly follows Elul, the month of Tishrei. That's what we're preparing for after all. Let's focus on the holiday coming up in a little under a month, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Orthodox Rabbi Menachem Leibtag asked a thought-provoking set of questions. To our surprise, the holiday we call Rosh Hashanah is never referred to as such in Chumash, in the Bible. In fact, Chumash tells us very little bit about this holiday that we are told to celebrate on, quote, the first day of the seventh month, see Vayikra, Leviticus 23.23. So how do we know that this day is indeed a day of judgment? And why should this day mark the beginning of a new year? I highly recommend reading his entire article. For now, let's review on some of his conclusions, his punchlines, to aid us in understanding the nature of Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Leibtag points out that all biblical holidays have two components, an agricultural one and a religious one. He quotes several Bible passages, noting that the agricultural year in Israel ends and begins in the seventh month on the biblical calendar. He observes a, a reference to this in the verse that states that Israel is a land which the Lord looks after, Mereshit Hashanah, from the beginning of the year, Ad Acharit Hashanah, until the end of the year. Devarim in Deuteronomy 11.12. The obvious reference here is to the similar-sounding day on the biblical calendar, Rosh Hashanah, or the head or beginning of the year. Secondly, he mentions how the mitzvah of blowing a shofar on Rosh Hashanah, and indeed throughout the whole month of Elul, brings to mind military combat. Think Joshua, Jericho, and the story of Gideon and his 300 men. He adds, the shofar was used primarily in war by military commanders and officers to communicate with their troops. Imagine you were to go buy a shofar in ancient Israel. Well, today we would go to our local Judaica shop or shop on the internet. However, in biblical times, in ancient Israel, you would go to a military supply store. You would go to a military outpost to get a shofar. Indeed, the prophet Joel connects the shofar with a day of judgment as he says, Blow a shofar in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. 
who can endure it? Joel 2, 1 and 11. The month of Elul prompts us to reflect on the past 11 months and take stock of the good, the bad, and the ugly in our walk with Hashem, in preparation for the Day of Judgment, a nickname for Rosh Hashanah. Elul is a special month, and the sages have searched the scriptures to understand the nature of this month and the secrets that are hidden in it. The sages understand Elul, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, as a series of acrostics that relate different themes embedded in its spiritual DNA. In my time today, I want to structure my personal story of, of Teshuva and break it up by different acronyms for Elul found in various parts of Scripture. Some of these acronyms are well-known and often repeated during the season, and some of them are more obscure and only known to our mystics. Each acronym is found in a unique part of the Tanakh, in a unique context, and introduces a unique aspect of the month. My goal is to use my own story not only to inspire you and give you an insight into my life, but also to encourage you to continue down your journey. The chapter in Shemot Exodus that follows the Ten Utterance, i.e. the Ten Commandments, expounds on God's revelation at Sinai. In a section detailing the laws of murder, the Torah states, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lay in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint a place to which he may flee. These verses establish a principle that will later be known as the cities of refuge. Encoded in the phrase, I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee, is an acronym for Elul. The theme of the passage represents a place, in other words, the place in the year corresponding to the month of Elul, which is an auspicious time for one's teshuva to be accepted for all previous sins done during the year. The context of this passage also reminds us that one must make teshuva even for one's inadvertent sins. The extent of my Jewish life growing up was filled with these kinds of unintentional sins. Some were innocent, not really understanding that eating bacon on Yom Kippur was wrong, or for that matter, not even knowing what Yom Kippur really was. However, my turbulent teenage years were filled with some of the worst, most nightmarish things any parent could think of. In my short 12 to 13 years of life, I had grown up in a physically and emotionally abusive home. My father was a retired LAPD officer who had spent his years on the force dealing with the worst segment of societies. Drug dealers, outlaw motorcycle gang members, pimps, prostitutes, and everything in between. I grew up hearing stories of convenience store shootouts, biker brawls, and drug dealer shakedowns. An unfortunate reality of interacting with humans engaging in the most depraved aspects of their Yetzirah results in police officers ranking highest in the number of alcohol and drug abuse cases, spousal abuse, and domestic violence. Growing up with a father who dominated the household with fear and intimidation fostered a firm, rebellious spirit inside my neshama. Ironically, I became involved with gangs, drug dealers, and promiscuity. At the tender age of 11 or 12, I encountered my first contact with uh, things you shouldn't look at. We'll say it that way. From ages 13 to 16, I became addicted to drugs. Sold drugs, was held up at gunpoint both by rivals and police multiple times, became sexually active with multiple partners, and was detained by police numerous times, ultimately getting arrested in the same police station my father had worked at only a decade earlier. I was utterly lost, hurting, and hopeless. 
A famous Talmudic dictum states, a person should always engage in Torah study and mitzvot. Even if he does so not for their own sake, he will come to perform them for their own sake. Psachim 50, side B. This can be illustrated in the first stop on my journey of teshuva. Let me explain. The prettiest girl in my school became the object of my next love interest. However, there was only one problem. She spoke almost no English at all. Armed with three years of high school Spanish and the language of love, I approached her and we soon began dating. A few months later, I met my girlfriend's mother who had come up to visit from Mexico. Upon meeting me, she promptly stated rather emphatically that she didn't want her daughter dating a boy who wasn't Christian. During our conversation, I revealed that I had Jewish heritage, and her eyes brightened and a smile ran across her face. She gleefully exclaimed, You're Jewish? I love Jewish people. I'm going to pray for you every day. Great. I thought, now I've got this old school Pentecostal Christian Mexican lady praying for me. I finally broke down and attended a bilingual service one Friday night. I can still remember my drive to the church that night as I unexpectedly caught a glimpse of some curious fedora-fitted, black-suit-wearing, bearded men who happened to pass by the church on their way to Arab Shabbat services. It was almost as if Hashem was winking at me in some cosmic version of foreshadowing my life's journey. That night changed everything for me. The visiting pastor at the Youth and Young Adult Friday Night Service in Santa Monica, California, displayed something I'd never experienced. He had matched me in almost every aspect. I was involved with gangs, and he had been involved in gangs. I abused and dealt drugs, and so had he. But there was one sharp contrast between us two. He was up there smiling and happy, and I was in the audience feeling miserable about my life. The old-time Pentecostal altar call was given, and I accepted. The next four years were filled with exciting growth with God and His Word. I had a voracious appetite for prayer and Bible study. I attended midweek, Friday night youth, and Sunday church services every week without fail. Three things started happening that would lay the groundwork for the next stage of my Teshuvah journey. Number one, I devoured the Bible and any biblical commentary I could find. Number two, I began preaching and teaching at Bible studies and regional youth events. And number three, I had this nagging question I couldn't shake or get a satisfactory answer to that would fit with my theology at the time. Having never read the Bible upon becoming a Christian, I did what anybody would do with a book and began at the beginning. I emerged after reading the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua utterly confused. Why did the Bible mention all these Jewish holidays ending with the phrase, You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever? Why did the Bible seem to speak about Israel and the Jewish people non-stop? Faced with these thorny questions in the context of my evangelical Christian theology, my pastor and others directed me to the New Testament that would, quote, clear everything up. Again, I started in the beginning and reached a curious phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. You guessed it. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5.17 I remember writing in the margin of my spirit-filled life study Bible. Does this mean that we still need to keep the law? Umo Hashem Elokecha et Levavicha et Levav Zarecha. Devarim Deuteronomy 30 is the chapter on Teshuvah. 
It speaks about Israel's national teshuva, individual teshuva, and the coming redemption. Shaul, Paul, uses this teshuva chapter to speak about the concept of tzedakah, being right with Hashem, based on emunah, faith. In this chapter, Moshe makes the following prophecy. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, the Lord your God will gather you. and The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Verses 4 through 6. The promise to circumcise your heart contains our key words spelling out the acrostic for Elul. Shaul uses this passage in the context of a plea for his Jewish brethren to recognize the time of their visitation by the Messiah and realize that the whole goal of the Torah is the Messiah. Chapter 10, verse 4. Shaul's letter to the Colossians states, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of Messiah. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. The context of this passage reveals the inner essence of teshuva, turning to Hashem's commandments, especially the mitzvah that you believe in Him who He has sent. Yochanan, John 6.29 This circumcision of the heart speaks nicely of this next stage of my teshuva journey. Or in other words, would the real Messiah please stand up? I entered Messianic life in 1999. I still remember the Y2K craze and the deep concern that our civilization would collapse, but it didn't. My world, however, was going to change drastically in the most wonderful and challenging of ways. I was entering my early 20s and I had my first encounter with a Messianic synagogue, and I was hooked. I still remember Rabbi Joshua Brumbach, then it was just Yosh to me, picking me up from Pepperdine University every Shabbat morning in his beat-up old Toyota pickup truck. As we made our way through the windy canyon connecting Malibu, California to Bethlehem Messianic Synagogue, I would pepper him with all sorts of questions for that half-hour ride on a range of topics. I was slowly changing my paradigm from the Pentecostal Christian mindset that had been imprinted on my spiritual life like writing in wet cement to a Messianic Jewish mindset. I'd spend the day at synagogue engaged in Messianic praise and worship, I soon became the drummer in the worship band, sitting in on eye-opening sermons as I followed along in my David Stern Messianic Complete Jewish Bible. We would go out to lunch after services or maybe to go see a movie to spend the remainder of our Shabbat afternoons. I was at home and enthralled with a way to merge my identity as a Jewish Christian and my awakening realization of what it meant to be a Messianic Jew. I had entered Messianic Judaism at a time when a shift in thinking began to take place. Messianic Jewish pioneer Rabbi Stuart Dowerman was one of the earlier champions of this new philosophy and became a mentor to me. At a recent scholar-in-residence talk given at the King's University in their Messianic Jewish theological program, he summed up this revolutionary new way of looking at Messianic Judaism that went from, quote, good missionary strategy to something entirely different. He says this, We began to address Jewish people from within Jewish life rather than from outside of Jewish life, and not as critics of the religion of the rabbis. What at that time was a pragmatic concern, the best way to talk to Jews was in Jewish life, would later become a major theological conviction that it's incumbent upon Jews who believe in Yeshua to live communally covenantal Jewish lives. Renewal for the Messianic movement would not come from galloping off into some unforeseen Holy Ghost future. 
but it involves reconnecting with our past in order to move forward. This was, and in some circles still is, a radically controversial call to Jews who believe in Yeshua. This was, and in some circles still is, a radically controversial call to Jews who believe in Yeshua to embrace Torah and mitzvot for their own sake rather than as evangelistic tactics. This conviction met with tremendous opposition and played a large part in defining some fundamental differences between the MJAA, Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, and the UMJC, Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, if not overtly, definitely organically. This idea definitely defined the way alliance congregations and conferences differed from the union congregations and conferences. This was an exciting time that led to hip conferences and Shabbatones, weekend-long gatherings, dotted across the country. I forged friendships and relationships with rabbis and friends who would later go on to become rabbis and congregational leaders. This period from my mid-twenties to my mid-thirties also marked several years of angst, despair, and depression. As I started carrying out this novel theological idea to its logical conclusion, I continued down my path of Teshuva to Hashem by developing my Messianic Jewish identity and observant life. I became more and more anchored into what I call classical Jewish observance, or what the world calls Orthodox Judaism. I attended Orthodox synagogues for Arab Shabbat and holiday services my Messianic synagogue didn't offer. I frequented Torah study classes, read Art Scroll and Feldheim books, downloaded hundreds of hours of classes from Orthodox rabbis, and built relationships in the Orthodox community and with Chabad rabbis. I also continually got kicked out of synagogues, simply because of my beliefs. I was too observant for my Messianic friends and too Jesus-believing for my Jewish people. I was in no man's land. On top of this, I began to despair that I was 25, now 30, now 35, and still single. I'd like to say that these years were completely holy. They weren't. In despair, my old addiction started to creep in and take root. I didn't use drugs, and I certainly wasn't promiscuous. I could hardly get a date. But I started to succumb to every man's battle. I fantasized about women I saw, looked at things on the internet that I shouldn't have and wasted hours and hours watching television and movies like a zombie. It wasn't until I finally started allowing Hashem to circumcise my heart by cutting away all the blockage that had built up over the years of despair and depression that I started to get a foothold in these sinful habits. Well, let's call them what they were, addictions. I joined a Jewish 12-step group filled with rabbis that all struggled with the same sins and temptations that I did. I started surrendering my hypocrisy. Sure, I was this observant Jewish man during the daytime, but I struggled with sin, you know what I'm talking about, at night. I was learning how to surrender myself to Hashem fully. I was learning how to surrender to Hashem fully, letting Him into those areas that I was ashamed of. This acronym for Elul is found in Shir Hashirim, Song of Solomon. It represents the attachment of two lovers. The sages say that we have multiple relationships with Hashem, subject to a king, a son or daughter, and a father, or, as Rabbi Akiva puts it, two lovers. This almost scandalizes our conception of Hashem. What does erotic love have to do with religion and spirituality? The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, helps us understand this way of thinking of our relationship to Hashem. 
he asks, why did God create romantic love? He points out that Hashem created romantic love to help us understand how Hashem feels for us. Imagine two lovesick people who are separated by time and distance looking to be together. Okay, well, if you can't imagine that, ask yourself, what's on the lock screen of God's cell phone? The background of all his divine apps that he uses to run the world? It's you. You're on his lock screen. Hashem's crazy about you and loves you to pieces. You're always on his mind. This, this is the relationship that we're trying to cultivate in this season. I think you can probably guess the next stop on my Teshuvah journey, definitely if you know me, it began two years ago when I married the one I had been waiting to meet all this time. I remember coming to Beth Emanuel five summers ago and thinking, great, now I'll never get married. How am I going to find a wife when I live in this tiny Midwestern town that probably has the same population as my neighborhood back in Los Angeles? Little did I know that the past few decades, Hashem was answering my prayers all along by growing and maturing this amazing Southern Midwestern blonde, hazel-eyed girl in Missouri, of all places. I'm so incredibly thankful to be on a new journey of teshuva, that of daily apologizing to my wife and kids for being the grumpy pants or losing my temper or just plain forgetting to take out the trash. The same way I can't understand how Hashem puts up with me, I'm also a bit dumbfounded how my wife and kids put up with me. When I think about why and how the king of the universe can pick a drug-addicted, bacon and shrimp-eating, assimilated Jewish boy to reveal the mysteries of his Messiah and the secrets of his coming kingdom, I'm dumbfounded and overwhelmed with gratitude. Of all the billions of people on earth, I get to be part of a tiny group of people who have the privilege of pioneering Hashem's coming kingdom reality before its full revelation on earth. We get to stand between two behemoth religions and be deputized as the king's ambassadors, his ministers of reconciliation, as Shoal calls it in his first letter to the Corinthians, calling out to them to be reconciled. This isn't an easy place to be, and the role of these kinds of ambassadors isn't easy to fulfill. A lot of people can't handle it. They rescind the position and hang up their ambassador credentials. They become disillusioned, feel disenfranchised, and decide that if you can't, Reach them, join them. But as the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in regard to those who fall away, we're confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Hebrews 6 9. When I reflect on my story of Teshuva, I can only think of the verse from King David What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Take on my yoke. And learn from me And find rest for your soul